Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we are in, really this is the third and, and final chapter uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, so uh, the last of those we, be, we begin uh, this morning. Uh, what's it all about? Um, what, what's the point of the sermon uh, Jesus is giving us? This is, really should be the question that's, that's always in your mind. Uh, what's, what's He on about? Um, and, and I'm sure by, by now all of you will be able to, to answer this question, right? Because we've really been giving you the answer uh, every week for about 13 weeks. Um, so the, the Sermon on the Mount, really Jesus is describing what it looks like to be a follower of Him. What it looks like to be a disciple uh, of Jesus. This is what a true follower of Christ, this is what their life actually looks like. This is how they live. This is what, what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, really, to simplify things, we can, we can say that, that followers of Jesus become like Jesus. They, they live their lives more and more like he did. Uh, he's the king in this kingdom, and, and his followers become like him. So he, he begins in, in the sermon with the Beatitudes. Uh, his followers, the, the blessed, they're, they're poor in spirit. They mourn. They're, they're meek. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. Keep that one in mind today. Uh, they're pure in heart. They, they are peacemakers. They are persecuted. And all these things that Jesus is, his followers are as well. And I think we've asked you from the very beginning to be asking yourself this question as we make our way through the sermon. Does this describe me? Does this describe my way of life? Is there evidence? Is, is there fruit in my life that proves that my heart has actually been captured by Jesus? And, and the result of this is I'm beginning to look more and more like Him. But, but as you examine your life in this way, I think one of Jesus' main points in the sermon is, is to warn you not to simply examine the external. When you're looking for this change of life, uh, the fruit of, the evidence of being a true Christian, there will be this huge temptation to simply look for external righteousness, which is why all throughout the, the sermon, Jesus is calling for his disciples to have a, a righteousness that exceeds mere external cleanliness. Uh, we've kind of coined this term, a deeper righteousness. Uh, and the bulk of Jesus' sermon, he's calling for his followers to have this, this deeper righteousness, a righteousness of, of, of the heart, of the inner person, not, not just a surface level obedience, uh, a whole person righteousness. And all throughout the sermon, Jesus keeps calling for this. So when it comes to, to anger and lust, uh, I'm after what's on the inside to be clean. Uh, when it comes to fidelity in your marriages and, and your oaths, I'm after your heart. When it comes to, to how you treat those who, who are your enemies, um, uh, when it comes to retaliation, I, I'm after what's on the inside to be righteous. Do, do I want you to care for those in need? Yes, but I'm after your heart in this. When you pray to God, I'm after your heart. Okay, don't pray for the sake of being recognized as holy. No, that's a surface level righteousness. No, no, pray with, with a clean heart. Pray, pray like that of a child to their daddy. So over and over and over again, Jesus is calling us to, to have a deeper righteousness, a real heart transformation. And, and we've used this image that's on the screen uh, that really maps out these sections of, of this greater or this deeper righteousness. So most of chapter 5, Jesus is explaining what it means to have this deeper righteousness in, in relation to God's law. 
Uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, it's him explaining what it means to have this deeper righteousness in relation to, to your personal devotion to God. These things that, that, that generally go kind of unseen, uh, your, your giving, your, your, your prayer life, uh, your, your fasting. Um, and a couple weeks, uh, for a couple weeks, we, we've looked at what it looks like to have this deeper righteousness in relation to the world. And really the world is made up of, of two parts. Uh, there, there's the things of this world, the, the material world, and, and then there's the people of this world. And we looked, we, we looked at the, the material uh, from chapter 6, uh, verse 19 to 34. Uh, here's what this deeper heart-level righteousness looks like in relation to the things of this world, in, in relation to, to money and treasure and the things that money buys. And today in chapter 7, he's, he's really turning from the personal that we've been looking at for a while, uh, prayer life, fasting. Uh, your bank account. He's looking, he's turning from, from that personal stuff really to the interpersonal, uh, from, from, the, from the vertical to, to the horizontal righteousness. Here's what it looks like to have a deeper righteousness in relation to, to people. And, and anytime you, you sprinkle in people, uh, things get tricky, <laughs> things get difficult. Uh, so we want to pay attention uh, to what God has for us today. Uh, let's pray before we, we move on and dig into today's passage. Uh, Father, we love you. Uh, the only reason that we do love you is because you loved us first. Uh, you've loved us uh, from uh, before there was even a foundation of, of, of the world. Uh, your love was for us. Uh, you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to come and to be the way for us. Um, once we were dead, once we were, we were far away from you, once we were enemies of you, but because of Jesus and what he's done for us, it's through his blood, uh, you've brought us near. Uh, you've made us uh, from enemies into sons and daughters, into family. Um, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Spirit, we ask for your help today. Uh, thank you that, that we have you to guide us, to lead us. Uh, Spirit, I ask that you would, uh, would be uh, in me and be with me, Lord, uh, that you would, that you would uh, speak through me. Uh, I don't have the power, I don't have the strength uh, to, to place truth into people's hearts. Only you do. Um, so we depend on you. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So chapter 7. Uh, what does it look like to have this, this deeper righteousness of the heart when it comes to our relationships with other people? Um, as you know, Sermon on the Mount is, is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. And really, chapter 7 has, has some of the, the most kind of famous and, and pithy say, uh, sayings uh, that have made the sermon so popular and so memorable. Uh, so popular not only just uh, to the church, but, but also to the, to the world, uh, to even to unbelievers. It's, it's some of these statements uh, in this chapter that have made really the person of Jesus uh, so popular. Um, uh, have you ever heard someone uh, who, who's not a Christian and they say uh, something along the lines of, you know, I don't like religion or, or I don't like the church, but I do like Jesus. He, he seems like uh, at least an interesting person or, or a great teacher or, or a revolutionary uh, person. And there's a good chance that, 
that they feel that way because of one of these statements uh, that we're about to encounter in, in chapter 7. Statements like what we're going to cover today, judge not that you be not judged. I like that. Don't judge me. Uh, he's going to challenge people for seeing the speck in someone else's eye when they themselves have a log in their own. This hypocrisy. Like when Jesus challenges hypocrisy in people's lives. Um, he, he's going to say, ask and it will be given to you. I like that one. And the, the famous golden rule, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat me like you want to be treated. All of these things are, are, are statements that people can hear and, and like, and they think, yeah, I can get on board with this, Jesus. He, he seems like a great teacher. But what you see happen is people can, can hear and like something that Jesus says, but at the same time completely misunderstand it. Uh, completely miss the true meaning of what he's saying. We, we often take uh, these sayings out of context and, and run wild with them, thinking that they mean something uh, when they may actually mean something else. And, and, and really, we do this with, with the entire Bible. Uh, a great example is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, and and uh, we love, athletes love this one, don't they? Um, I'm going to win this race. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to score this goal. I'm going to lift this weight. I'm going to conquer because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, but that's completely missing the point of that verse. It's, 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 it's taking that out of context and, and misusing it. Because in that passage, Paul, he's actually talking about contentment rather than conquering. Because before, he, he says, um, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, in, every, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that verse, it, 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 it isn't about, about God giving you the strength to, to win the big match. It's about God giving you the strength to be content no matter what your situation is, whether you are abounding or whether you are in a low place, facing hunger and need and, and poverty. Do you see how we often misunderstand the Bible? It's, it's so important to read the whole of Scripture, to understand the context, to, to read the rest of, of what it says, not just to, to cherry-pick verses and, and run with them. And I say all of this today because this section, it, this happens to it all the time. Uh, we, we easily uh, do this. We, we take this section uh, and kind of run with it. Judge not that you be not judged. And, and really, man, our culture loves this one in particular. Um, and don't judge me. You do what you think is right, and, and I'll do what I think is right. And no one has a right to judge anyone else's actions. But I want to propose to you uh, that this isn't exactly what Jesus means uh, when he says, judge not. And for two main reasons. There's two kind of hurdles that we have to get over in order to understand what he's saying here. Uh, firstly, we have a bit of a translation hurdle uh, to, to get over. So the Greek word for, for judge here in verse 1 is krino. And, and, and judge, it's, it's a good word, uh, it's a good translation of that word. Uh, but the problem we have is, is how we as, as Westerners understand the word judge. 
Because in our culture, the word judge really has, has come to mean almost exclusively to condemn. So our culture has this ethos of don't judge me, which basically means don't condemn my actions. And, and the problem we have is that that only captures part of what that Greek word krino means, because it actually has a much wider and, and deeper meaning. Uh, the word literally means to, to pick out or, or to choose by separating. It, it means to distinguish, uh, to evaluate, or to discern and decide, which really describes the role of a judge, doesn't it? Uh, a judge is someone who listens, who perceives, who, who discerns, and then decides what is just and then dispenses justice, and dispenses justice both for the right and the wrong party. So we often think of the judge as ushering condemnation and guilt to the one who is in the wrong, uh, which he does, but that's not all. He also dispenses favor and success and deliverance and safety and victory to the one who is in the right. Do you see how we often have such a, a narrow understanding of the word judge? Uh, Jonathan Pennington writes uh, about this kind of distorted understanding of justice that we have. He says, it is not just condemnation for the bad, but restoration of what is right. With it, it's necessary good and bad consequences distributed accordingly. Uh, so the, over and over again, the psalmists uh, in the book of Psalms uh, pray that, that God would uh, uh, judge His people, judge the people of Israel. And it, it's, that, that doesn't mean uh, God condemn us. It means God give us what is right in this situation. So, so really, a, a better way to understand this verse is, is do not judge unfairly. So the, the point is not that all evaluations of others and situations must be avoided, but rather that disciples must evaluate and discern properly and fairly. One must not judge others more harshly or by a different standard than one judges oneself. So we have this, this hurdle of translation or a correct understanding of this word judge. It's not necessarily do not, do not judge, never judge, but rather do not judge unfairly and by a standard that you wouldn't judge yourself with. Does that make sense? Uh, the second hurdle we, we have is this, is this temptation of totalization, uh, which basically means that we take one statement, judge not that you be not judged, and we make it the overriding principle by which everything else should be understood. So, so the command not to judge really becomes the truth that Jesus is teaching. It's the principle by which all the rest uh, of Jesus' teachings are to be, are to be understood. Namely, that, that nothing should ever be condemned or judged as wrong. And I think it's this view that, that's really made Jesus such a popular figure. But again, uh, Pennington writes, it's for such readers, do not judge me, becomes the mantra uh, through which all the sermon and all of Jesus must be understood. And Jesus is right here to be laying down a maxim that no one should ever judge or pronounce as wrong any other person's position or life. But the problem with this view is, is that it's awfully confusing when you read the rest of the teachings of Jesus. It's, it's awfully confusing, especially even just here in the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott pointed out that, that actually much of Jesus' sermon is based on the assumption that we will use our critical faculties 
that we will and we should make value judgment calls of others. For example, Jesus says that we are to be distinct in this world. He says that we're to be different from the world around us. Salt and light, he calls his disciples. And keep reading it. In, in verse 20 of chapter 5, he calls, uh, he calls for his disciples to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And keep reading. Several times he tells us to, to not be like the hypocrites. He tells us, don't be like the Gentiles. So the question is, is how do we do that? How do we obey these commands if we're not, uh, these commands not to be like these people, unless we can first discern fairly and, and evaluate their, the, the performance or the life of others and then ensure that ours is, is, is different from theirs. It's confusing. Uh, just keep reading. Just after telling us not to judge in verse 7, he immediately tells us to avoid giving what is holy to dogs, uh, to, to avoid casting your pearls before pigs. We're gonna, I'm going to explain what that means in a bit, but in order for us to do that, well, we're first going to have to discern who is going to be classified as pigs and dogs. Or, or, or in, in chapter 7, verse, 20, verse 15 to 20, Jesus tells us, beware of false prophets. In this section, he's, he's going to, he's, he's, uh, he, he tells us that we're going to have to discern who is a wolf and who is a sheep despite their natural appearance. So he says there's going to be some who are, who are going to come into your, your flock who are, who, who's going to look like a sheep, but they're actually wolves. And you're going to have to discern who is who in this situation. Keep reading. In, in chapter 18, he's going to give us a guideline for church discipline where he tells us that you will have to discern who is a true believer and, and who is to be treated as an outsider. So the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that we can't read uh, judge not that you be not judged in this totalizing way that, that makes it incoherent with the rest of Jesus' teachings. Scott McKnight summarizes these verses. He, he says, Christians can pronounce this is good and, and that is wrong, but they shouldn't pronounce you are condemned by God. Do you see the difference between those two things? There's a heart difference between those two things. So the Christians, are, are we, do we need to be wise and discerning? Will we need to make a fair value judgment calls of others? Will we, will we need to pronounce certain things as good and certain things as wrong? Well, according to Jesus, absolutely. He tells us that we need to do those things. But he, he says that ultimate judgment will be carried out by God alone. That that is not your job, it's his. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 to 5. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light. Uh, uh, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And he will expose the motives of the heart. In fact, I think there's this parallel uh, between this section and last week's section. So last week, Jesus was, uh, we saw that he was, he was talking about anxiety, and we learned that, that anxiety in the Christian's life is essentially us putting ourselves in the position of God. 
It's, it's this lack of trust in his sovereignty, that he knows what is best for us, that he knows exactly what his children need. It's us thinking that we know better than he does, and so we put ourselves in the improper position, which is essentially what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And again, here, Jesus is exhorting us to remember our proper position. T.W. Mason, he writes in his book, The Sayings of Jesus, he says, The whole business of judging persons is in God's hands, for he alone knows the secrets of men's hearts. This does not mean that we are not to use all the moral insight we possess in order to discover what is right and wrong, but that we are to confine ourselves to that field and refrain from passing judgments on persons. Listen to this. For our judgment is itself a factor in shaping their lives. And a harsh judgment may help a fellow creature on the road to perdition. He says, when you judge people unfairly and harshly, you're actually helping them along their way to eternal damnation rather than wooing them into the arms of Jesus. You see how Jesus is again calling us to have a heart like his in this, a, a deeper righteousness. So are, are, you, are you critical and discerning out of love for a person? Or are you a fault finder who's negative and destructive towards other people? Do you, do you enjoy actively seeking out others' faults? Do you put the worst possible construction on people's motives? Do you, cold, do you pour cold water on their schemes? Are you ungenerous towards others' mistakes? Uh, Jesus is calling his disciples to be wise, to be discerning, to sometimes make difficult value judgments, but to do so with a heart of love, with mercy, with gentleness, with generosity. Why? Because that's what's in his heart. Because that's how God has dealt with us. Look at verse 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does that mean? Um, it sounds a lot like the, off, uh, like the golden rule in verse 12, treat others uh, the way you would want them to treat you. Uh, but Jesus explains what this, uh, what this heart looks like really in, in, in Matthew 18. Turn over there with me. Matthew 18, he, he, he gives us this parable where he explains what it, what it means to have this heart what it means to, to treat others with, with the measure that you would want to be treated. Um, verse, verse 21. Uh, then Peter came, to, came up and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? But Jesus said to him, I do not say uh, to you seven times, but seventy times seven. And in verse 23, he goes into the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. But when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Stop there. 
we have a bit of contextualization to do here to properly understand what this is saying. Because I, don't, I, do, I doubt many of us know what 10,000 talents is. Um, one talent is 20 years of wages. It's you working 20 years. Um, so 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of wages. <laughs> 200,000 years of wages. And so if you make 30,000 pounds a year and you work for 200,000 years, that's 6 billion pounds. We live in a, in a world of, of billionaires, so we think 6 billion, that's not, oh, okay, a lot of people have 6 billion. You don't understand how big of a, 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 an amount 6 billion is. It's you working for 200,000 years. It's a massive debt that he owes. Verse 25, and since he could not pay... Well, obviously, uh, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This is uh, comparatively nothing. It's about 20 months of wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down on, uh, on his knees and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's a, a couple main points to this passage. Uh, this 200,000 year wage uh, debt is Massive. It's meant to illustrate the debt that we owe because of our sins to a holy and a righteous God. So in this situation, you are the servant. And this unsurmountable debt illustrates our complete inability to ever pay such a debt. And This parable really illustrates God's mercy and his patience in withholding his immediate judgment that all people deserve for their sins. That, that judgment uh, is, Romans 6, 23 says, the, the wages of, of this sin, of this debt, is, is death, is what we, is what we um, uh, deserve. But this parable, it, it points towards God's gracious provision of Christ's death and his resurrection to pay that debt for our sins and to break the power of sin. So, so the main point is, is this gift of salvation, this grace and this mercy that God has shown us, even though we don't deserve it, is immeasurably great. The second point is the proof that a person 
is a true believer, the proof that they have this deeper righteousness of the heart is that they are comparably merciful to others. So turn back to chapter 7. Do do you see uh, the heart that Jesus is calling us to have? The deeper righteousness is not to judge unfairly. Don't be like the servant who who was forgiven this massive, unpayable debt, was shown uh, unbelievable kindness. Yet he turns around and judges his his fellow servant unfairly. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Do you see how Jesus keeps giving us two options? Um, So in the previous chapter, he gave us his option of of where you're going to lay up your treasure, heaven or earth. And he gave you this this option between two masters. You're going to serve either God or money. You can't do both. And he gives you this option to either trust that your father knows what you need and will meet those needs, or to anxiously take matters into our own hands. And here he gives us this choice to either have a wicked, unforgiving, harsh, judgmental heart, or to have a heart that has been captured by Jesus. A heart that realizes the grace and the mercy that you yourself have been shown. And and in turn, uh, you treat others the same way. You extend the same generosity to others. So uh, we have the the command in verse 1, not to judge others unfairly. He, He gives the reason we do that. Uh, because the measure that you use will be used against you. And then he gives us this illustration uh, in, in verse 3 to 5. He gives us another really short parable to show us what this proper discernment uh, with, with a righteous heart actually looks like. Verse 3, uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, uh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is, it's an interesting parable because on one hand, there's something quite normal about it. There's something quite everyday that we all can relate to. I'm sure everyone in this room has had, a, has had something stuck in their eye before, a speck of dirt, a, some dust, or, or a hair. Remember, Jesus himself was the son of a carpenter. And don't think they had goggles back then, so I'm, I'm sure he's had this happen to his own eye uh, several times in his lifetime. Something quite normal about it that we, that we all uh, can relate to. But on the other hand... You have this ludicrous picture of someone with, not a speck, but with an entire plank in their eye. <laughs> it, it's, it's humorous, isn't it? It's something that, that we, our first reaction is to laugh at this picture. But it stops being quite so funny when Jesus uses again the H word in verse 5. Hypocrite. And not just hypocrite, but you hypocrite. He's speaking to his disciples. 
You see, every other time he's used this word before, it's always been about the Gentile. Don't be, don't be like those. The, don't be like the hypocrite. But now he turns and he makes it about us. You are a hypocrite if you act in this way. You are like the unforgiving servant. Your heart is wicked. You're completely blind to your own situation while constantly pointing out the faults to others. Really, I think this parable shows us what it looks like to have this this deeper righteousness of the heart when it comes to helping others with their sin. Because remember in verse 1, verse 1 doesn't mean we're never to point out the wrong in people's lives, but rather we do so fairly. We do so with a merciful heart, knowing that we are not the judge, but but we are fellow sinners that have been saved by grace, that, that we've been shown immeasurable mercy by God himself. And it, it, this verse, it, it doesn't say that we're never to take out the speck in other people's eyes. No, it, it merely says that we're not to do that without first recognizing our own faults, our own blindness and inability, inability to judge properly. We're, we're first to remove the log from our own eye, to address our own situation, and then gently and charitably help the other with their speck. You see, this is the kind of heart we're meant to have in this situation. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher. He's a brilliant theologian. But he was also, as it says in his title, a medical doctor. And he wrote this about this passage. He says, There's no organ that is more sensitive than the eye. The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. So we learn here that criticism of others is a very delicate operation. Think of a parent who, who's, who's with their child at a sand pit at the beach. And, and the child gets a, a, a speck of sand in their eye. And, and the young mother would pick up their little boy or their girl and, and ever so gently help remove the speck from their eye. Uh, I have small children, and I've had to do this uh, several times before, and trust me, uh, the situation is not pretty. <laughs> uh, my, my son is, is a, maybe a little bit dramatic, something in his eye, he thinks his death is, is imminent. <laughs> um, they're, they're screaming, they're squinting, but I have to remain calm. I have to, have to tell them that it's going to be all right. I have to convince him again that he can trust me, that I love him, that I have his best interest in, in, in mind. And I have to be very, very careful to, to help them get the speck out of their eye. And, and that's how we're meant to conduct criticism, not with judgment, but with gentleness, with love. D- does the speck need to be removed? Yes, But as we confront others, how are we to take the speck from their eyes? We do it gently. We do it delicately. And we're gentle and we're delicate for two main reasons. Firstly, because we've had something in our eye before. We know what it's like. We know the pain. We know the discomfort. We know the fear. So we should be sympathetic to the situation. And secondly, we're gentle because someone was gentle with us. Someone helped us remove the speck in our own eye. 
Have you ever had something in your eye and tried to get it out by yourself? It's very difficult because you can't see what's in your eye because you need your eye to see what's in your eye, and, but something's in it. <laughs> you need someone to help you. You need someone with clear vision and with gentle hands to help remove the object from your eye. We're merciful to others because someone has first been merciful to us. Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite when dealing with others and their sin. Don't minimize your own sin while magnifying the sin of others. Don't, don't point out the sin in others as, as a way of elevating yourself, as a way of puffing yourself up. See, hypocrisy is often a, a guilt avoidance, isn't it? Don't be a hypocrite. This is what John Lennon's son, Julian Lennon, said about his father. Uh, my father was a hypocrite. He could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant most to him, his wife and his son. It's sad, isn't it? Hypocrisy is, is a terribly damaging thing. And, but we love to see the speck of scandal and error in people's lives, don't we? And we, we, we love hearing about people's error and, and shaking our, our hearts, shaking our minds, our, he, our, our heads in disapproval. And this is so much of what Twitter is, isn't it? And this is the thing I love and hate about Twitter, <laughs> perusing scandal and error, shaking our heads at the specks in people's eyes, all the while being completely blind to the plank in our own. John Stott wrote this about this passage. We need to be as critical with ourselves as we often are to others and as generous with others as we always are to ourselves. We need to be as, as critical with ourselves as we often are to others and as generous with others as we always are to ourselves. What an illustration. When I'm involved in criticism, when I'm involved in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in removing a speck, I need to be aware of my own condition. I need to be so sensitive. It'll, it'll have to happen. Uh, keep reading uh, Paul's letters. So correction, rebuke, encouragement uh, to one another. It's part of being a loving Christian. It's part of being part of this family, a community who's being sanctified together, there, there will be things that we need to go to one another about, but we need to be so gentle, and we need to do so with a heart of, of greater righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. My friend Chris Lewis uh, sums up this passage by saying, don't be a judgmental jerk. Be discerning disciples. Uh, we're to be discerning. Uh, we, we do it gently and generously, but we're also called here to do it wisely. Uh, look at the last verse, verse 6. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not trample your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's, it's striking language, isn't it? Uh, but, but read the rest of the Gospels, and you'll see that, that Jesus isn't afraid of striking language. Uh, he, he can be quite outspoken. 
He'll go on to call hypocritical scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs and, and broods of vipers. Jesus will confront you if you need him to. And I think these verses actually give us a, a healthy balance to the rest of the passage. So, so yes, we're not to be judgmental jerks. We're to remember the grace and the mercy that we've been shown by God, our insurmountable debt that has been forgiven, this kindness we've been shown. We're to gently and graciously help others, but only after we've addressed our own dire situation. But we aren't to just ignore problems and pretend that everyone is okay. We are to be humbly critical and discerning and help others with a speck in their eye. But we need to, to realize that not everyone will want help. Not everyone will be grateful for our loving correction. That there's a, a certain level of discernment that is required of the disciple. There's this equal and opposite danger, Chris says, he says, where on one side of the pendulum, you'll, you'll come across as hypercritical, as self-righteous, as harsh and judgmental. But there's the, the other side of the pendulum where, where anything goes, where, where you're overly tolerant, where, where you don't discern anything. We're all fine. You, you do what you think is right, and I'll do what I think is right. You're, you're a people pleaser. And Jesus is saying that there will be a certain... There, there will be certain people who must not be pleased in this way. In fact, he calls them pigs and dogs. And, and, and Jesus is saying that, that um, don't throw your pearls before them. Um, because pigs, they don't have an appreciation of pearls. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't care about pearls. They'll just cast it aside and trample on it. They don't realize the value of the pearl. Pigs like being filthy. They like eating muck. So don't throw the pearls before them. What's he talking about here? Later in Matthew chapter 13, he's going to go on to talk about the gospel. He's going to talk about the kingdom of God as a pearl of great price. That is the most treasured thing in the world, the most valuable thing. The thing that brings ultimate joy is the kingdom of God, that it's worth everything. It's worth selling all you have just to attain it. It's worth giving up your life just to get it. It's everything. But he says there are some people that you need to avoid casting this before, that you'll come up against some people who are so close to it so against it, their hearts are so hard toward it and you, that Jesus says, you have my permission to move on, to go and share it with someone else. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus, he sends out his 12 disciples and he says in verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. You have my permission to move on. You actually see the Apostle Paul demonstrate this several times on his missionary journey in the book of Acts. So in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch sharing the gospel, casting the pearl, if you will. And verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. 
So what a beautiful picture. What an amazing uh, situation. Almost the whole city is gathered to, to hear the word of the Lord, to hear the gospel being preached. Verse 45 says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was, at, what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So so it's it's some of the Jews here who are the dogs and the pigs in this situation. They're, They're contradicting him. They're reviling him. So he said, all right, so be it. I tried. But he goes and he and he shares the good news with the Gentiles. And and when the Jews uh after that, they incited the city leaders, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They're going to try drive them out of the city. And verse 51 says, Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet, and they went to Iconium. They moved on. They did exactly what Jesus said to do. In Acts 18, verse 5, again, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia it says, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's casting the pearl again. And when he opposed, verse 6 says, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Jesus is saying, you need to be discerning disciples as you're sharing the gospel with others, you'll, you'll come to some who will revile you and this message. And you'll need to discern when it's time to move on. And Chris, uh, he, he, uh, he says this about this passage, and I think he's, he's completely right. He says, this, this, this uh, verse really will apply to very few people in the room. And if it does apply to you, it will probably apply maybe once or twice in your lifetime. John Stott himself said this, the great preacher. He says, I can think of only one or two occasions in my experience when I felt it was right to move on. Even the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary we've ever known, on his great missionary journeys, thousands of people he shared the gospel with, The book of Acts records this happening just three times. So so we want to approach this verse with fear and trembling. We don't want to use this verse as a a get-out card. Because if we're we're going to err, we always want to err on the side of, of giving, of sharing, and not on withholding. You see, most of us in this room our problem is not an overzealousness in sharing the gospel in an undiscerning way to cast the pearl before the swine. The problem for most of us is that we don't cast the pearl at all. We don't tell anybody about Jesus. We, we don't hold it up as something so valuable, so precious, that, that, that we just have to tell, share it with others. We, have, we want people to know the truth about Jesus Christ. So maybe verse 6 doesn't apply to us at all. 
But, but we pray uh, that, that, that in God's grace, we become uh, such an overly zealous congregation, sharing this good news with everyone, that one day verse 6 might have to rein us in and say, you need to move on. You're casting the pearl before pigs. But until that point, we keep casting. We, we keep giving. We keep sharing. We keep telling people about Jesus this marvelous grace that is on offer, if only we come and ask for mercy. So you see this, uh, this picture of the Christian here in, in chapter 7, this picture of, of the true disciple of Jesus. It, it, it's, it's the one who realizes their great and unpayable de- debt has been paid by Jesus. They've been shown this immeasurable mercy, this amazing grace by God when they did not deserve it. And because of that forgiveness, because of this mercy, our heart is one of mercy for others. We're not judgmental. We're not self-righteous. We're not condemning. Because we're aware that we come from the same sick state as everyone else. We don't belong in the judge's seat. We belong in the dock. But we have a Father who loves us, who sees us, who sent His, his only Son to take our judgment, to, to pay our debt. And it's out of that gratefulness that we share this good news with the world around us. Let's pray.